In order to fully grasp why the children of Milford Christian would want to burn the church and school to the ground, you have to understand a few things about Pastor Jim Loomer. Back in 1989, Jim was just a regular guy, a sometimes general contractor running a restaurant in Milford called Sloppy Joe's. He was also a faithful congregant of Nick Champlin's Faith Christian Church in New and West Haven, where he'd worshipped for years alongside Mark Vincent and their wives, where Sharon Vincent claimed to be that night in June 1988 when Doreen disappeared forever. It was 1989 when Pastor Richard Scallon, who founded Milford Christian Church in 1966, called Jim to be its pastor, despite his total lack of religious training. Jim will tell you he welcomed the change. You are thinking differently. Gosh, when I first got saved, I mean, I had a lifestyle, and people thought that was a pretty good lifestyle till, till I got saved. Then I couldn't stand even think of the lifestyle and was pursuing a whole different life, capital lifestyle. In my own, my own personal life, I was not at the, you know, just... Um, at the bottom, what's the term they use? Bottom of the barrel, or there's another phrase that has to hit the bottom, or what? what, what? Rock, gotta hit rock bottom before. I, I, I hadn't hit rock bottom. I had a lot of toys, I had a lot of, uh, I had a business, I had stuff, stuff, and uh, looked pretty good from the outside, but on the inside, I wasn't fulfilled till I came to Jesus. But I didn't hit rock bottom, and you don't have to hit rock bottom either. Or maybe you have hit rock bottom, but you don't have to hit rock bottom. Rock bottom or no, the new pastor's start was shaky, as Andrew's heard from Grandma Phyllis for years. Sloppy Jose's is, it was a Mexican restaurant. And once upon a time, um, Jim Loomer owned it, but everybody in the church made him feel like shit for owning it because it sold alcohol. Like they literally put him through hell that he's a pastor and he owned a restaurant that sold alcohol. I was too young. I didn't know Pastor Scallon and his wife, but apparently Nana said that if they could see like what the church was like today, that he'd be rolling in his grave. Uh, apparently they were very good, um, very good people and excellent in the church. And then when, when it got, you know, given over to Pastor Jim and Mrs. Martin and Mr. Kirk came in to play. Everything just kind of went to shit after that. The effect on the church was dramatic, with one woman even taking it upon herself to try to rouse Jim from his new post. In fact, a lot of people left the church when Pastor Scanlon said that he was going to nominate Jim to be the pastor. You know? Yeah. A lot of people left. I mean, some people I could tell you about, but they're dead. I mean, she actually wrote to the Assemblies of God about the whole situation, but she died, so you can't, you can't ask her nothing. What did she write you know? to them? 
Well, she said, first of all, that she didn't feel he was qualified. He never went to seminary school or nothing like that. He just, uh, because, you know, I don't know, he had a restaurant and they served alcohol. And she felt like he shouldn't be a pastor if he's got a restaurant that serves alcohol. And mm-hmm. it was a lot of things. But that was one of the main things what she was against. That, that That's not showing good character if you have a restaurant you're serving alcohol when when you know you know alcohol is what gets guys and women in trouble you know what i mm-hmm. mean sometimes jim made moves that got phyllis's goat and might make you scratch your head they let people come into the church and take over positions that people had in the church who were doing really good like i had a position in the church i was cooking i was doing the cooking for just the kids you know for the school so this lady from Another church, she comes in and she says, oh, well, if you let me cook, I'll give you the, uh, whatever money I make. Uh, so you're going to have a little playground for the t- kids. Do you know the pastor said, okay, never told me that he had let this woman come in and take over for me. I go in there with my food, prepared to cook, and she's in the kitchen. I said, oh, what are you doing here? She said, I'm cooking lunch. I said, cooking lunch for who? She said, for the kids. I said, since when? She said, oh, Pastor Jim said I could cook the lunches for the kids. I said, oh, that's news to me. Why didn't can't Pastor Jim tell me? And then we had Sister Gluck. Well, that's another one, Elizabeth Orlando. She knows a lot what's going on, too. Her mother was a pianist, and her father played the guitar. They were the nicest couple. They were so, so honorable. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You could depend on her. She did the katatas every year for the church. I mean, such nice people. So these two lesbian women come in, and they talk to Pastor Jim, and they want to, they want to do the piano, and they want to do more modern uh, stuff instead of the hymnals and all that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happens? Sister Block, the same thing happened with her. She comes and finds out that they're taking over her job. Ah, some will say, that's just Jim. Because in living his life as a Christian, in reaching out to people to save them, Pastor Loomer looks to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake, so that I may be partaker of it with you. All things to all men were his exact words, Grandma Phyllis told me. If he wanted to appeal to the Catholics, he wore the collar. Maybe Jim's desire to be a shepherd for everyone explains why he skirted controversy on seemingly little things, like a lunch lady position. Phyllis thought so. It's almost like he doesn't like confrontation. Does that? Uh, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking he'd rather just, okay, I'll just do it and uh, we'll see what happens. So I left the church. And a lot of people left the church. Pastor Jim, he could be the nicest guy you want to meet. You know what I mean? But I think he doesn't like confrontations. Okay. You know? But that's just not true. 
perhaps on the surface, Jim's just an aw shucks, average Joe, can't we all just get along type of guy. As one source so aptly put it, Pastor Jim has never faced consequences for anything. He's one of the most manipulative people I've ever met. He plays this doofy, happy-go-lucky man of God. He plays dumb. And everyone buys it. But he always knows exactly what he's doing. And they are not kidding. In reading about the good pastor, speaking to the children he's overseen and traumatized, and listening to my fair share of his sermons, spending hours immersed in his words, his beliefs, his very way of life, I couldn't help but be repeatedly struck by the real Pastor Jim. The real Pastor Jim is a man with a sly penchant for speaking out of both sides of his mouth, for twisting God's words to serve him. He loves playing innocent lamb, stirring up contention so he can swoop in as the hero, or to play the victim, whatever serves him best. Loomer loves to wield his church like a weapon, to brandish it like a sword, against those who would question him or call him to task, and God help, literally, those that he hurts. And that's just not very Christian, is it? I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is Walk Softly Children, Season 3, Episode 11, All Things to All Men. Walk softly, children, walk softly, children, walk. Softly, children, Before I start the show, I'm proud to announce that Walk Softly Children has been chosen of one of Mashable's 10 best new true crime podcasts. The review invites listeners to help me pursue answers, not only on what happened to Doreen, but also to tunnel into the dark corners operated by her father, Mark, and those in the evangelical circle he inhabits at Milford Christian. Mashable reads, If Doreen really did leave 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road on June 15, 1988, Fritz Aguirre is on the verge of finding out what happened next. For years now, I've believed that justice is attainable for Doreen, and now for the Milford Christian kids as well. But Mashable makes a good point. My podcast is still considered new because it still needs some good word of mouth to launch this story into the stratosphere. Please help me do that by not only subscribing and recommending the show to friends, but also writing the show a review, which puts it in people's feeds and helps it get more visibility and listens. You can also join the conversation on the Walk Softly Facebook page. Follow me at my new Twitter account, at WalkSoftlyDory. That's D-O-R-I. Or you can become a patron for any amount starting at $5 per month to help me buy coffee for those writing mornings and takeout for those writing nights. Finally, please be sure to check out all the other great podcasts that Clovercrest Media and my fabulous producer Joe Aguirre has to offer. And to all my listeners, whether new or old, I'm glad you're here. First things first. I'll admit Pastor Loomer is a powerful presence on the pulpit. He does have the occasional bumble or lapse here and there. Uh, oh, I lost my train there. Uh, so, anyhow. <laughs> what? When he's not quite on the ball, 
It's chalked up as charm with his faithful followers, including Mr. Vincent himself, to keep him humble. And thank you to uh, Barry and Sheila for the good word and uh, the ministry that they brought with them. Shelly, what did I say? Shelly, forgive me. Thank you. Mark, thank you for listening. Dear God, thank you. How many, how many are like, uh, is Marmaduke the dog? And when the master's speaking, all he hears is blah, 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 blah. How many just hear blah, 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 blah? And as long as, long as he smiles once in a while, I guess we're okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark, for listening to actually what I'm saying. Shelly and Barry, thank you, Shelly and Barry. Praise God. It's always good for a chuckle when Jim's grasp of certain subjects is a bit shaky, like with this prayer, where he literally turns his body to direct God's grace toward various U.S. states and cities with about a 50% success rate. It lasted about 20 minutes, and let's just say I hope Jim's not teaching the students geography. We can do all things through Christ, who is the foundation of our nation, in the mighty name of Jesus. Is there another city you want to, which one? Rochester, Rochester. Where's Rochester? Right over there. Over here, Rochester. We pray for Rochester. That's Maine over there? Maine's up there. West, east. Maine is, should be over there, shouldn't it? Anyway, God, you know where Maine is. But we're praying for Rochester. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. John, pray for Rochester, would you? Often decked out in a selection from his seemingly endless Hawaiian shirt collection, he's a little goofy and a lot cheesy, not above off-color humor, more appropriate to a fifth grader trying to make his buddy snort Kool-Aid out of their nose. All right, well, I think with that, we'll receive the offering, and then we're going to give a big roar for Michael who's going to come and encourage us about is your, how big is your God this morning. How, by the way, how big is your God? <laughs> One former student remembered not Jim's shirts, but his pants. Jim Loomer wore pants that were just a little too tight, they wrote me. They hugged his genitals just enough that everything was pronounced. I don't think that was intentional, but it was a fact. When I was young, I had undiagnosed OCD, so intrusive thoughts ran rampant a lot of the time. And I fell asleep most nights repenting, hoping I wouldn't burn in hell for thinking about Jim's penis during school chapel or Sunday service. At 71, just a few years older than his buddy Mark, Jim's what the kids call a boomer and, of course, a conservative Christian, so sometimes his takes can be a bit antiquated. Like here on Father's Day, when he lectures about how it's so important for fathers to protect their children. As usual, his buddy Mark Vinson is right up in front. Fathers, we're big guys. We're, you know, if we welcome somebody who turns out to be a, um, what's the word, a, a character, I can't think of another word, a, uh, uh, you, you know, a problem, we can handle it. Fathers can. Moms, girls, they, they, you know, they get a little timid sometimes. Maybe their size, maybe they're, Maybe they haven't been to the gym all that much. Maybe they haven't learned their karate yet. Whatever it is, girls can be a little timid. Guys, we need to, we need to be confident that we can accept people and see them uh, restored. Can any men in here today? Hallelujah. Bloomer might not always grasp how things might land or look, or maybe he just doesn't care. What matters to him are his principles and his people, 
women and men restored and redeemed in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Jim wants everyone to feel what he felt when he first accepted Jesus as his Savior. We all were pretty excited when we got saved. The grass was greener, the sky was bluer, and the birds sang louder when we got saved, usually. I mean, some of us have had some rather, you know, life-changing, born-again experiences. That, I just described mine. I always say the same three things here. Jim's a shepherd, and his door is always open to his flock. Pastor Jim has allowed a lot of people to come and live at his place over the years, you know. Like, he's got a couple extra bedrooms. You know, he's got three boys, but they're all grown up. Jim's got a particular soft spot for those, like Mark, who need a little extra shelter from the storm. I'm going to play you something now. It's very long, almost 10 minutes, but you're going to want to hear this, especially if you're like me and like a good story. Time for a story or not time? I can keep it short. It's Christmas Eve. I'm still a bachelor. I have a house, and I've taken in this uh, young fellow whose mother used to rent from us, and uh, he's tormented. He's been out. Late at night, he comes in, he's, he's really tormented. It's Christmas Eve. This is the funniest story that I think could ever be told. Uh, and it's getting late. And this guy has no intentions of going to sleep. And he is in my kitchen, our kitchen. He was a, you know, I took him in. He wasn't paying rent or anything, but I took him in because he was a fatherless boy happened to see his father murdered when he was about nine years old. He was, it was a tough, tough start for him. And then his mother was not well, and um, so he was not well. And most of you have heard this story before, but it's pretty dramatic. And so it's getting to be midnight, one o'clock, and I'm starting to fade out. But what he's doing is he's got the, I, had, I think I had a gas stove then, if I remember right, gas, I'm sure it was gas. He was having a psychotic episode. Well, I suppose he was. He was imagining things. So he's got a pot on the stove, you know, a good size, however many quart pot, stock pot. And he's starting to just make some kind of soup. And in goes the ammonia. In goes the wristwatch. In goes the a slice from the Deffenbachia tree in the living room. In goes some you know, clippings out of the newspaper, and he's making himself a brew. And I mean, he's busy. He's really into it. And I'm watching him, and I'm thinking, God, I, I got to do something. So <clears throat> being that it was uh, Christmas Eve, it was cold out. Uh, it was warm in the house, but cold. So my, my is, is all right. This is kind of a funny story. You have to get the picture. My father had an, a raccoon coat that I still have. You know what a raccoon coat? They used to wear those in the, what, the 40s, I guess? Football, game. Football games. So I go put on the raccoon coat over my shorts. So I have bare legs from the hem of the coat down. You just have to see me, you know. You really have to see this. And, uh, and I, say, I say to the fellow, come on, get in the car. We're going to the hospital. You need help, and I can't stay up to keep you safe. This thing's got to end. I took him down to Yale, New Haven. In those days, we had the West Haven toll booth. Anybody remember the toll booth, right? And so I get to Yale, New Haven, psychiatric, emergency room, whatever it was, 
And I said, I need help. This guy, I, I, I got, you know, he's dangerous. He's going to hurt himself or hurt us or start the house on fire or whatever. I don't know, this is too long of a story. But so anyway, he, um, uh, they say, well, you know, we can't take him tonight. You'll have to bring him back when we have more personnel here, I think it was. So I get back in the car with my raccoon coat, which is, has a big tear in the back. I'm not looking good. I'm looking, I'm looking, you know, like I just came in from the wilderness somewhere. And, and so we get, we're coming back and we get to the West Haven toll. I stop to pay the toll and this kid jumps out of the car. Now, those of you who remember the West Haven toll, they had staircases. And he jumped out of the car, went down the staircase right by the toll booth, which took him underneath the highway. And he came up inside in the office over on the side, which I think the building is still there, if I remember right. Now, he's inside. And he's telling them that I'm a bad guy and I'm chasing him. So I, I go up, you know, and turn around and come back and get, my, get myself over there by the building. And I go up to the window and I start knocking on the window in the raccoon coat and the bare legs with the torn back. And I say, I'm saying to the guy, he's crazy. He needs help. <laughs> do, do you get the humor in that? It's really, it's ironic that that, and, and you know, I've learned to dress now. It's obvious. So... Somehow I managed to convince them that he, that the boy was in trouble. He, I don't know how old, he's probably 18 years old then. Uh, and they released him to me and I get him in the car and I get him home and things are not getting better. It's now two o'clock in the morning. Now what I'm about to say might offend somebody. I don't mean to offend you. It's two o'clock in the morning. I'm getting desperate. I'm really getting desperate because I can't stay awake much longer in this condition. So he's going at the soup again and whatever and whatever. And finally, I turned around and I said, in the name of Jesus, you come out of him, you spirit, whatever it was, you foul spirit. And when I said that to him, it was a hardwood floor in the kitchen. He went from standing to thump on all fours. I mean, he just went straight down, thump. And, I, and this voice, this is what's going to offend somebody. Uh, the voice said, I'm not coming out. He's mine. I'm Catholic. All right. Get the, I'm just telling you what happened. Right? And so I said, you Catholic spirit, come out of him in Jesus' name. Now, I'm not saying this to offend anybody, but, but I suppose in any sort of religion, you can have idolatry, and maybe that had something to do with it. I'm just telling you how this thing went. When he was on all fours, I said, you come out of him in Jesus' name, and he went from all fours to bam, flat on his face on the hardwood floor, just thump to the first level, thump to the second level, and he's down there a while, and I'm thinking, I'm not getting him up. And I'm just waiting on God. He's on the floor for a certain amount of time, I don't know, a couple minutes, three minutes, four or five minutes, I don't remember exactly how long. And he gets up and he says, what happened? I feel so clean. What happened? And he's in his right mind. And he says, is it okay if I go upstairs and take a shower? 
And I said, yeah. Now, by the way, I'm not a pastor then. I'm a Christian, and I'm probably not that old in the Lord yet. Uh, but I cast out a demon from this kid. And he comes down, he goes upstairs, and he comes down, and he has a stack of pornographic magazines. And it, it, it so happened that I had a fire going in the fireplace because I was too cheap to use the gas to heat the house. Uh, and he said, can I throw these in the fire? Which he did, threw them in the fire. I didn't know he had them, whatever, whatever. My, you kind of get my point? Yeah. He, there, I mean, of, of all the things going on in his life, and I didn't know what was going on, really, here he's polluting himself with this pornography, and he's, he's bound up like crazy, just psychotic. But the Lord set him free at the command uh, for this demon to come out. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Now, that took way too much time, but I, I don't ever want you to forget me in a raccoon coat, torn in the back, uh, bare legs, trying to get to tell them that this poor boy's crazy. I think that's, it's all, I guess the point is you don't have to be a professional at this. You just need to be a believer and desperate enough to see people free. Believe it or not, that's not the only demon that Jim would save as a young Christian. Here's another account. You know, when I first got saved, which is a while back now, the guy who led me to the Lord that, and the whole group that, that led me to the Lord, I mean, I was a week old in the Lord. Do you mind just a little story here? You do. Okay, forget it. Uh, you do. I was a week old in the Lord, and, and the people who led me to the Lord said, Hey, Jim, uh, this afternoon we're going to be casting demons out of this man. Uh, and they told me who he was. He was a CEO of a big, uh, you would know the name. I'm not going to say it here. It was a big, uh, big transmission repair company. He was a CEO, but he apparently he was, uh, had something to do with drinking blood. Now he was, and he was uh, tormented, terribly tormented. He was successful in, biz in his business, but he was tormented I don't mean to gross you out. I see I grossed a couple people. I'm sorry about that. But this was way back when, when blood wasn't that popular. <laughs> and only four of you know what I'm talking about. But the point is, um, I'm a week old in the Lord. And they said, we'll be down over at uh, Jerry's house. Uh, so come on by. You can see what's going on. Now, how many know I haven't been through six steps of personal deliverance, renewing my mind, et cetera, and knowing the truth that sets me free and all. <laughs> and they said to me, now, now listen, Jim, if you start to feel uncomfortable or anything, just go wait outside near the beach over there and we'll be done in a while. My, and my point is this, when I came into the kingdom, it was all about setting prisoners free. It wasn't about joining a mega church and having mega jewelry with mega crosses and you know mega cars and it, it wasn't that at all it was it was really setting people free <laughs> i mean that's come to think of it now that i think about it that's why they tapped me on the shoulder i think they knew i needed to get set free and i did get set free i wasn't drinking blood or anything like that so not that not that jesus couldn't forgive that he forgives everything you were willing to repent of so uh but but the point is uh, that's, that was, you know, how as they say, I cut my teeth in Christianity on being an army that sets people free.
A less shocking and much more standard look into Jim Loomer's approach to the life of a Christian in recent years, his desire to be all things to all men, is easy to find on the internet. Start with his stock reactions to recent reviews of Milford Christian Academy, to the laments of some of the children he somehow missed along the way. One man scorns the school's teachings on creationism and Earth as the center of the universe, then writes, All the kids who go there end up with social problems. Took me years to recover from just one year there. Jim, ever unruffled, takes it all in stride. It's been a long while since I've seen you, Jim replies. I trust you and the family are doing well. I have just become aware of your concerns and would like to hear more. I am interested in your beliefs about the origins of life and creation. My recollection is that we have always presented both the theory of evolution and its challenge, the biblical account of creation, as the answer to the origin of life. Our purpose in doing so has been to provoke students to research as much for themselves as necessary, to hold one belief or the other with adequate supporting reasoning. As you know, science cannot establish something beyond only a theory, something that is not observable and reproducible. I would very much like to meet with you to hear more and how you are doing. We care and pray for former students, wishing you all well. Please contact me through the school office or Facebook Messenger so we can further discuss your thoughts. Another former student's review contains accounts that will be familiar to you. I don't remember much from this school, he writes, because luckily my family moved when I was in kindergarten. What I do remember was hiding behind the toilet because they told me I was going to get paddled for picking my nose. The principal, Mrs. Martin, unlocked the bathroom and paddled me over the sink. My sister was secretly made to watch a video behind my parents' back, and they explained to her why my father was wrong. It was a so-called scientific movie explaining how the math added up and about how the center of the universe was the Earth. She was also told that dinosaurs weren't real, and when she saw fossils for the first time, she asked if they were real. The youth minister turned out to be a convicted child molester. I'm so happy that my family got out. Pastor Loomer's response is as follows. I have such fond memories of your family at school. The deck your dad built still stands after so many years. I trust you are doing well. I would like to discuss with you the concerns you have raised since I am hearing of them for the first time. My recollection is that your dad was very close to Mr. Kirk, so I am very surprised to read what you have written. Please call the school office or find me on Facebook Messenger and we can set up a time. I would very much like to get caught up. Best regards to the family. I'm glad Loomer mentions Ron Kirk, the founder of Milford Christian Academy and its first headmaster, because it's important to recall Kirk's original vision for the school before Loomer unceremoniously ousted him from power. Kirk, who lived with his family in the big brown raised ranch next to the church, had no formal seminary training, just like Jim. His family was Calvinist, drinking wine and beer, but not to excess, although one source recalled watching one of Kirk's daughters smoking a cigar. For a while, at least, the two were able to work together in harmony, even though their visions for the academy were entirely different. One former student put it this way, Kirk had a vision for a school for the elite. He only wanted to accept exceptionally bright children. Kirk envisioned children reading the great books and preparing them for college. Jim wanted to be a mission. 
Kirk and Loomer did agree that modern education was a dangerous bastion of progressive and liberal ideas, especially regarding science. So they set out to hire people who were, quote, teachable, women and men lacking in degrees who could and would be trained each summer to follow Kirk's handwritten curriculum and handbook. This resulted in glaring gaps and worrisome content. Troubled at an instance of blatant racism in his so-called biology book, one student took it to a teacher who told him quietly to just ignore that part. There were no teacher selection committees. Instead, Kirk chose the candidate subject to Loomer's veto power, power with which he soon became all too comfortable. I remember Jim rejecting my ideas for teacher candidates for reasons not elaborated, Kirk told a source of mine. To this day, Kirk denied any hard feelings. I trusted God, he wrote, as I went to Connecticut in the first place to trust the people he gave me to work with and to serve on that basis until conduct demonstrated I couldn't. Nothing was ever perfect. We worked in a different culture there and even a different religious perspective. And thus Jim, with Susan Martin by his side, took over, and the Kirk family left for California. Jim and Susan painted the family's house yellow and moved in Janet Parody's Little Eagle's daycare. The house's basement, which had once functioned as an ad hoc rec room for the church kids, would become Susan's apartment. Kirk's vision of a mission for the elite, that former student told me, was over. And then, quote, Jim and Susan took away our curiosity, joy, will to learn. Also gone was a modicum of protection that Kirk's presence cast over the kids. Here's Ron Kirk Jr. Yeah, you were talking about one kid who, whose mom sent her to school and told Susan, hey, spank my kid when she gets there, mm -hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That is something that I think at least, you know, my dad would not have, like, gone for. Okay. Right, because his, his thing is, right, it, like, he is very, you know, the parents and the family are the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And his goal is more like, we're expecting your family values align with our school values. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be an extension of that. But, like, you know, while you're not here, but you're the parent, that's your responsibility. Okay. Like, you have responsibilities in this, too. Can't just, like, ship your kids and expect us to parent, right? Learning from my source about Susan Martin's harsh insistence on modesty and corporal punishment once he left, Ron was shocked and saddened, insisting that it was never supposed to be like that. Emily Martin, at least, took issue with this characterization. I'm struggling with feeling sympathetic toward Kirk, she texted me because some of the most traumatizing shit happened to me while he was there. I was four years old, getting beaten with a paddle for tying my shoelaces together. These days, Pastor Jim is very vocal when it comes to his beliefs on what an ideal education looks like. Given his conservatism and his evangelism, his approach is not unsurprising, if also ironic. Uh, today I want to get to the... Uh, uh, right to a Christian, a godly education. Now, you know, it's easy for me to talk about this because we have a school and, and you have paid the price for us to have a school here. So, you know, you should feel pretty good about this. But Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. These are the, the, the word of God and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, Christ 
uh, Deuteronomy is not speaking about Christ in particular, but we know uh, as Christians talking about living in Christ, etc., is an all-day affair. It's not an hour or two on Sunday morning. We, we get that. Uh, so certainly if your children are in school and they're in school under the supervision of an adult more than they're in your supervision during the week, if you look at the hours because you're not supervising them while they're sleeping, their waking hours, they are under the influence of a teacher more than they are a parent. Well, the principle was in the beginning, and as you know, in our nation, the principle was we would have public schools so that children would learn the word of God so they would not be deceived by the old deluder. His name is Satan. The word of God, it was seen that the word of God should be taught to children. They need to learn how to read so they can read the word of God so they can be the good citizens that we had aforementioned here uh, just a little bit earlier. Uh, Paul wrote to the fathers in Ephesians, and he said, And you fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the end of the Lord. It, the, 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 the point I'm trying to make here is uh, Christianity needs to underlie and support, underlay, and support education. Around here, we remind people that uh, uh, Noah Webster, the first you know, certainly a founding father and, and uh, the first schoolmaster of America basically said you got to do three things to educate a child. You enlighten his understanding. That's great. All schools do that. They fill their heads with ideas. Uh, but you need to also correct their temperament. And you need to teach them manners and habits that will accommodate them in their future station in life. And when, when in government schools, when, when the temperament is not confronted, when a child is allowed to do whatever he wants, you know, secular education builds programs around the sinful nature of a child. Here, we'll just give him a bigger room, give him more place to run, et cetera, et cetera, because he won't, he's not controlling himself. Well, Christian education says self-control is a profitable, fruitful virtue that the child needs to learn. You can't just let children run wild, as an example. What may surprise you is the familiar but unlikely source from which Jim draws inspiration. As we do it in America, these days is not really a great discipleship program. Teen Challenge, great discipleship program because the guys are, and the gals, they are there being discipled morning, noon, and night. It's, a, it's, a, it's the way Jesus raised his 12. I doubt that Jim's take on politics will surprise you either, or that my views, as a self-described liberal feminist, do not align with his. For the sake of fairness, I'm going to try really hard here as hard as I can, to not criticize Jim's actual political beliefs. What does trouble me is his use of the church in the political realm as a sword of aggression and manipulation, but also as a shield to hide his deflection and his forced naivete. Jim's Who Me? approach was on display one afternoon during the 2004 Christmas season, when six men and women arrived on Milfordstown Green, a public space, to protest a nativity scene erected there. Dennis Paul Himes, Connecticut State Director of the American Atheists and one of those gathered, read a written statement noting that, quote, the Founding Fathers wrote a godless blueprint for our nation, 
followed immediately by an amendment guaranteeing the absolute separation between church and state. This belongs on a church lawn, Himes told a reporter, not public property. It's an implicit endorsement of Christianity by the government. But Himes's small crew didn't stand a chance against the 250 people who arrived to face off against them, led by Jim Loomer. Holding signs reading, This is a Christian nation, majority rules, Jim's people told reporters things like, I'm afraid of the atheists imposing their will on the supermajority, and I don't believe in the separation of church and state. After drowning out the atheists with raucous performances of Christmas carols, God Bless America, and the Pledge of Allegiance, Jim's bunch simply shouted them down, screaming that they were sick. When the crowd broke up, several police officers had to escort the atheists to their cars to make sure they weren't physically attacked. Jim hollered to his people, Would anybody care to hear what they have to say? The response was a chorus of no and go home. They should let these guys speak, Loomer told a reporter, shaking his head. It's America. Free speech. The Milford Christian kids had seen this can't-we-all-just-get-along attempt at plausible deniability too many times to believe it was earnest. Jim wasn't trying to calm things down, one wrote me. He was trying to rile them up. Jim loves to present himself as virtuous, above reproach, while speaking out of both sides of his mouth and attempting to land blows whenever possible. He's highly aware of what kind of impression the opposite approach will leave. If we show mercy to others, mercy is shown to us. If we show judgment to others, judgment comes to us. By the measure we judge others, we get judged, etc. That's, I think, to help us as Christians uh, understand or, or improve our serve and our effectiveness uh, toward reaching others. We don't want to harden people. One of, the, one of the greatest objections people, non-Christians, have said about Christians, and you don't have to wear this if you don't want to, but I like to hear what, what uh, those, um, you know, who are sincere but not quite believers yet might have to say. And one of the things you'll probably, you've probably heard this, one of the greatest objections to Christians, evangelical Christians, is they, that is evangelical Christians, talk like they know it all. How many have ever been around somebody who knows it all and you can't breathe? Do you, you know what I'm talking about? We don't want to be that person. We, 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 want, uh, we want to have two ears and one mouth. We want to be able to listen again so that people know that you're now addressing what is their actual need? Not what you think their need is, but what their need actually is. If I can articulate, if you've listened to me long enough, and I can articulate to you where my, you know, where's the empty spot in me, uh, you'll be able to address it better than if you just keep trying to fill me with what you think I need. Right? You know what I'm saying there? Uh, so, uh, so let's take a look at some of these questions and see if they don't help us uh, in discerning people's real needs so that we can give them something that feeds their faith. April 2012 saw the good pastor trying to ban the National Day of Silence, designed to promote a safe environment in the Milford School District for kids on the LGBTQ spectrum, while insisting that he had no issue with programs promoting tolerance and love for all groups. The former Milford Christian Academy student shamed for her bisexuality begged to differ. 
as did Berean's handbook, which allows a student to be expelled for, quote, male effeminacy. The language Jim used to express his feelings on the subject in a sermon last July was a bit harsher. He compared those on the spectrum to a creature from Revelation 17, a woman arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. And upon her forehead was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. But now we get to Revelation 17, the end of the age, 2,000 years, 2,100 years out. And now we see that system in Laodicea has propagated uh, throughout the earth, throughout the nations. Not every nation, but many nations has propagated through America. Not every church in America, but many churches in America. That very system with its fornication promotes homosexuality. It promotes all kinds of mutilation of, of young children in terms of transgenderism and those kinds of things. This church, this is the church that's being unveiled right here. This is the mother of harlots, mother of the unfaithful. So he carried me away in the spirit, so I've entitled this tonight, Unveiling the Mother of Harlots. In May 2012, Jim rented the Milford City Hall for a talk by William Federer. He's a Christian conservative leader known for the American Minute, a series of writing and broadcasts devoted to, quote, restoring America's noble heritage, as well as hate speech against pro-choice groups, gays, and Muslims. He's infamous nationwide for claims like, 9-11 was God's righteous judgment against those sinners. Concerned calls and letters bombarded the Milford mayor's office, including one stressing that it wasn't the event itself that gave the writer concern. What bothered her, she wrote, was that it was to take place at the city hall, blurring the First Amendment's boundary between church and state. It wouldn't concern me as much, she continued, if it was not dressed up as Milford and brought to our community from city hall. The real Milford comprises a wide diversity of people, groups, and purposes. My notion is that the real Milford is represented by its elected city officials, you, who do the real Milford's business at City Hall. Milford Alderman Philip Vitro agreed, telling a reporter he didn't want residents and taxpayers to believe that the city government supported Federer's beliefs. It would be nicer, Vitro said, if they could just use another building. But like his follower guarding the town green's nativity scene, the one who didn't believe in the separation between church and state, Jim offered his own dubious interpretation of the First Amendment, one ignoring why the Protestant founding fathers had fled the Catholic Church of England in the first place. The First Amendment, said Jim, was only meant to prevent government intrusion into religion, not to prevent government from religion. As for Federer, he didn't hate anyone, Pastor Loomer insisted. When presented by a reporter with Federer's statement about 9-11 being God's righteous judgment against sinners, Jim claimed he hadn't seen it. But Jim's no stranger to calling out groups he believes are speeding us along toward the apocalypse, as predicted by that well-loved book of his, the Book of Revelations. Muslims rank pretty high on Jim's list, but another of his targets are those who support a woman's right to an abortion, like me. Again, for the purposes of this podcast, it's not Jim's position I take umbrage with. It's the manner in which he deploys it. To begin with, 
He's light on facts. April 2016 found Jim engaged in one of his favorite weekly pastimes, protesting at the New Haven Planned Parenthood. He was interviewed by the New Haven Register alongside Planned Parenthood rep Carrie Rouse, who reminded the reporter that, quote, more than 90% of our services are preventative, including contraception, life-saving breast and cervical cancer screenings, and testing and treatment for sexually transmitted infections. Pastor Loomer, worried about the other 10% of Planned Parenthood services for reasons you might very well agree with, wasn't listening or wasn't swayed, telling the reporter that he, quote, tries to remind people that baby boys and girls will be dying inside that building today. Again, Jim is conservative. I am not. But facts are stubborn things, and Jim doesn't seem to have a firm grasp as to the myriad reasons why women get abortions. When you read the Bible, it says, uh, thou shalt not murder as an example. And you're in a church that gives permission or blessing to women uh, for killing their babies. And I'm, 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 I'm talking about the large percentage of babies. You know, everybody wants to say, well, what about the rape victim? What about the incest? What about the uh, tubular pregnancies and those kinds of things? Just set those aside for a minute. That's a small percentage. If it's even 2% of the abortions, that's probably more than it is. Like Jim, Alan Parody is also often big on outrage, short on facts. So short, it's probably best if you don't do your own research. Now, I was going to, I always, you know, when I get to the part about eating the, eating the flesh of the babies and all that stuff, you know, I usually like skip over it because it's kind of gross. But you know what? <laughs> I've heard, I, I, I've heard some terrible things about babies' flesh, aborted babies' flesh. And one of them has to do with vaccines, by the way. We won't go into that. But um, I read it on purpose. I was going to skip it, but I read it on purpose because aborted fetuses are being used for not only vaccines, but there's also some other pretty disgusting stuff that goes on with, that, with, with the parts, which you guys will just have to search for if you want to. It's, you know, maybe you don't want to do that. Uh, perhaps it's better that you don't. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. At the New Haven Planned Parenthood, Carrie Rouse told the Register that protests like Jim's are, quote, designed to shame the patients who seek basic health care services from Planned Parenthood and to intimidate the health care professionals who work here. One pro-choice demonstrator told the paper, we're holding these events to create a positive presence around Planned Parenthood. People here in New Haven are saying we don't want to see this kind of hate and anger outside our doors. In Jim's telling, however, he's nothing but a gentleman who loves to engage in, quote, spirited but respectful sidewalk debate. During that particular clash outside the doors of the clinic in 2016, Jim complimented one pro-choicer he wrangled with, to her face, as, quote, a highly intelligent young woman from Poland who is studying here. Later, when the debate was over and his opponent had left, Jim shook his head. I always try to engage people in thoughtful conversations about this, he sighed, but it usually dissolves, I think he meant devolves here, into character assaults on me. I wonder what that nice young Polish student would think about how Jim describes women like her behind closed doors. Don't come from killing a baby one day before it's born or leaving it to die after it survived an abortion. 
don't come after killing a baby and tell me you'd like to feed me so I won't be hungry anymore. I don't want your clothes. I don't want your sandwich. Here's another clip from that sermon on the mother of harlots. Think about a nation who has its women standing out and yelling in the streets, I'm a nasty woman. I, I, wanna, I, I have the right to abort my baby. Talk about, let's keep our eyes on the bigger picture here uh, for just a moment. Uh, if you're in a church that approves that, you're in a church that's blaspheming God. So that church, and I'm not just uh, wanting to say, well, the church, you know, the, the church board and the secretary and the pastor, I'm talking about the people gathered under that kind of teaching who are likely, if they don't walk away from it or correct it, are likely to propagate it to other people and create like leaven. It becomes, you, you, you just pass it on to this one and that one. It keeps growing and growing and growing, and we end up with the need for God to bring judgment on the earth. And God forbid that he would have to bring judgment on America like that. Are you with me? There's a face that Jim, while he doesn't like to share it with reporters, is more than happy to share with his followers. He encourages them to come to Planned Parenthood with him, as long as they're not going to be, in his words, pansies. Loomer's not afraid to admit to his flock why he likes protesting, and it's not because he likes thoughtful debate. Uh, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, where the pro-life team is in New Haven at Planned Parenthood, there's room for you. Yesterday, must have been 65, 70 Catholic people showed up again and just rumbled the sidewalk over there. It's, uh, I feel like a, I feel kind of like a uh, tough guy when they show up. You know? <laughs> yeah, come on, now you want to you say something? Come on now, while well, I got 65, 70 people standing around. Recently, Jim had a good laugh over his recent attempts to stir things up, to get under people's skin in a matter that is, if spirited, certainly not respectful. Been said Wednesday, Fridays, and then we go, some of us, on Saturday as well, down to the abortion mill, and uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that. It's really fun. I'm sorry for all the combative stories I've told here. I did sweeten it up yesterday. We had a couple people drive by with some expletives, and I yelled a, a hearty thank you as they went by, unlike my experiment over the last six, eight weeks, where I tried to one-up them. Whether you yourself think Jim's approach is justified is one thing, but it's certainly hypocritical. I saw he put up his Save the Babies BS at Planned Parenthood, one of my sources wrote, promising to help young mothers get going, to help them with rent, buy them diapers. Don't forget that the handbook declares that pregnant girls will be kicked out of Berean. Jim's public attempts to appear like Mr. Charitable are also a bit ironic in light of the rampant allegations that he and Susan were investigated for defrauding Connecticut Cares for Kids. An initiative by the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood, a Democrat-sponsored bill lodged with a Democrat agency, that program was built to financially support families in financial need through many avenues including allowing religious schools to apply for financial aid. Pastor Loomer and Mrs. Martin applied for tuition funds for needy kids, the story goes, but the money went elsewhere. Where, you might ask, and verily I say unto thee, God knows. It's not just Planned Parenthood protesters who give Jim his jollies. I had a guy yesterday at the Planned Parenthood roll down his window. I'm standing there all by myself on the corner, and he yells at me, from his truck, well, I don't have a mask, and he called me a nasty name. 
which you know only gets me going all the more. It just doesn't. You know how I thrive on negative attention. Jim doesn't just want all the negative attention himself. He wants his congregation to share in it too. And they'll shame you. And when the press shames you, then the liberals don't just take their cue, but they take their cue from the press and then they shame you. And that's why people are calling me and you names on Facebook. If they're not calling you names on Facebook, I want to see you in my office. If every man's speaking well of you, I want to see you in my office. During a 2020 march in Washington, the Loomers met up with the pro-Trump group Blexit to counter-protest Black Lives Matter. A stranger repeatedly approached Jim to whisper, I know who you are. His wife, Kathy, thought she knew why. But the point was that this guy, who's so typical about this guy, is if there's, if there's a little conflict or if there's a little issue or something, he gets right in the mig- middle of it because he totally, you know, sees himself as the, you know, the bomb that's going to heal the conflicts or whatever. So he gets in the middle of it. So it just seemed like the, the hot spots, when it would get kind of fired up, this guy would get in close. So that is why this fellow was convinced, I know who you are. So now you can finish the story. How many are glad you got that little piece? And so on the third time over, he comes over, he goes, and he pulls out this business card, and he says, really, I know who you are. I was talking to your partner, and he's got this uh, 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 law enforcement card of some detective or somebody. So I did not have the heart to tell him I was a nobody. I, I just I didn't I I just didn't want he had invested so much in believing that I was part of the, the undercover police department. I just had to let him go down the street smiling. I couldn't do it. It's not not that I wanted to rob the, the, the you know what I'm saying. So anyway, it was it was a sweet, sweet, sweet time. When it comes to doling out the fruits of God's love to those who need it, Jim's certainly choosy. He'll tell you that, like Jesus, he loves America's rich diversity, and he loves black people. Hey, folks, why are we not racists? <laughs> we're, all, we're all created equally. Huh? We're not racist because God's not a racist. But we can't ignore, Jim tells us, the three pillars of a civilized society that are falling away. The first is the sanctity of life. The second is the traditional family, the erosion of which makes him worried about sending little girls into public bathrooms. Jim's also very upset about men abandoning their families, which is strange to me given Mark's relationship, or lack thereof, with his own kids. And I don't just mean the four he had, including Doreen, with his three wives. I also mean a fifth child born between Doreen in 1975 and Paul in 1986. Yep, you heard that right. Anyway, the third rotting pillar is the national work ethic. The biblical scripture there was uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, for even if we were with you, we commended you, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And we discussed uh, with you whether intended good or not, the war on poverty that came in in the mid-60s tended to weaken the family structure, uh, break down the, the traditional family, and 
it eroded the national work ethic. I think we made that case there when you remember that uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, had suggested giving enough uh, to the, in those days, the Negro race, enough to quiet them down, but not enough to do any good. It was, a, it was kind of a, um, an opiate to their progress. Rather than a hand up, it was a handout that, that uh, disabled numbers of people stuck in poverty. As you recall, in that, under that system, you were penalized for saving money. You were penalized for having dad in the house. You were penalized. It was, so if it was intended for good, great, it didn't work. If it was intended for evil, great, it didn't work either. So that, that issue, when we violate the principle of, of uh, traditional family, when we violate the principle of the work ethic, we create problems. Milford Christian does have a food pantry whose site coordinator, a man named Timmy, recently passed away. His gentle banner, his ready smile, and his willingness to do what was needed, read a remembrance on the website for Connecticut Food Share, is sorely missed by all who knew him. And here Pastor Jim chimed in, with a take that might have struck me as cruel had I not known what a man of God the pastor is. Several weeks before his passing, Loomer said, Timmy mentioned chest pains to me, saying, The doctor says I probably have a blockage that needs attention, but I told him there are too many folks needing help with food right now for me to get involved getting medical attention. Loomer ended, Timmy passed peacefully yet busily about his father's business. Jim's take on motherhood itself can also be cruel. Last Mother's Day, he encouraged the women in his parish to be fruitful and multiply. God wants you to be a mother, he told them. Don't believe these godless liberals who tell you babies aren't a blessing. He recognized some women can't have children, and he thought he knew why. Some years ago, we had, I think some of you already know this, but we, I preached a message called Breaking Barrenness. And uh, I got home and Kathy said, did you happen to think of all the people there that haven't been able to have children? And, uh, uh, but I had, I had asked for an, I had offered an altar call and uh, uh, there were four couples in the church at that time who couldn't have, couldn't conceive. Five couples, like I said. Four came to the altar and got prayer. Within a year, all four of them had babies. Now, unfortunately, there was one couple who didn't come for prayer and um, hasn't, haven't seen the breakthrough yet. So, but, and I don't like to report that part, but what I'd like to do is just encourage you Believe God, if you know, if you're wanting to uh, have a child or uh, you know somebody, let your faith be released. With God, all things are possible. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Jim's Mother's Day story reminded me of another tale I'd heard about a couple I won't name. After leaving Milford Christian, they experienced an excruciating loss that no parent should bear. Some say all things happen for a reason. And the reason, to Kathy and Jim, was not mysterious. By abandoning the church that Loomer built, they told the couple, they brought the tragedy upon themselves. So maybe Kathy Loomer's curse is true. Maybe nothing good ever comes of leaving Milford Christian. 1 Corinthians says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. But Jim's not really there for all men, is he? Because once you're out of his good graces, God help you. Walk, 
Cheers. 